Coming up on today's show, if you thought the Canada Revenue Agency wasn't going to follow up on any improperly claimed pandemic benefits, yeah, think again. Politics and central banking. We worry about the politicization of important institutions in democracy. This is another one. And we'll have some follow-up onto last week's Supreme Court decision surrounding extreme intoxication as a defense in violent crimes. Uh, last week, and you probably know somebody if it wasn't you, um, Canadians from coast to coast to coast received notices from the Canada Revenue Agency. You received sir payments that you didn't qualify for, and now you're going to have to deal with it. And it went out to a lot of people, at least anecdotally. Social media is full of people who say they've received these letters. I don't know if it should come as a surprise, but let's get some details on exactly what it is and what it means. We're going to chat with Jamie Gollenbeck, who's the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with uh, CIBC. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Yeah, I mean, these a lot. It sounds like a lot of people receive these notices. Do we have any idea just how many went out uh, over the last week or so? Yeah, we we don't have those numbers. Unfortunately, it would be interesting to know. But yeah. certainly, yes, you're right. Social media. A lot of people are talking about it, and uh, you know, wouldn't be surprised if it's in the, in the thousands or tens of thousands, if not even higher. Yeah, for sure. So, what is the situation if you've received one of these? What are they being notified of, and um, what kind of mess are they in? Yeah, well, look, it depends. Each situation is obviously very, very different. So obviously there are a whole bunch of benefits from the CERB, the emergency response benefit that was replaced later by the kind of recovery benefit. And there's also some other more obscure benefits like the sickness benefit and, uh, you know, caregiver benefit, things like that. So what the government is basically saying is that uh, if you've received a notice uh, saying that uh, you're supposed to repay it and you haven't repaid it, they're sending out notices of debt saying a debt has now been established on your CRA account. And they're asking you to, uh, you know, uh, reach out to the CRA if you're unable to pay that debt. They'll work with you on a flexible basis, making payments. There is no interest. There is no penalties. That being said, if you still believe that you are entitled to the money, now is your opportunity to come to the CRA and say, look, here's my proof. Here's my qualifications. That's been an issue for some people. Okay. Now, this really shouldn't come as a surprise, right, Jamie? We were told right from the day this program started that this is how it would work. We're going to get money out the door, and we'll claw it back if we have to. Well, absolutely, right? So people have to remember that, you know, of course, in the heart of the pandemic, this was, you know, over two years ago, right, March of 2020, the government's main priority was to send out cash super quickly. You know, people could buy groceries and pay rent. I mean, it was urgent. In the first few weeks, I would say there was no, uh, nothing at all. Uh, you just filled out the form and they sent you the money. Um, but, of course, people applied in good faith and some people misunderstood the rules. Was it $5,000 of net income or gross income? Other people just fraudulently claimed and they figure, oh, they'll never come after me. Well, things are catching up. It is two years later, but the government does want to go back. Look, if you're legitimate and you qualify, you have nothing to worry about. You send the documentation to the CRA, they'll walk away. On the other hand, as I've written in my recent column, now there have been a number of cases where people claim they qualify, but they couldn't prove it. They got paid in cash. There were fake invoices, you know, things like that. That's where I think you've got to worry about it. So if they have this debt on their CRA account, what does that mean? Tax returns, things like that? You just won't get them until it's paid? Well, that's right. I mean, ultimately, that is certainly a, a problem, right? So in other words, if they put this debt on your account, uh, then any you know refunds that you're owed, things like that, will be used against uh, that debt. So I think it's very important to work with the CRA yeah. and make a flexible payment arrangement. And again, no interest, no penalties, 
but contact this area. There's lots of ways to contact them uh, online. So that's the thing. Don't ignore it. Work with them. Get this resolved because it won't just go away on its own, right? It won't go away. And there's been at least a half a dozen cases where people have tried to go to court uh, making up these stories. But again, unless you've got hard evidence that you've earned the money, that you qualified, that you were taking care yeah. of somebody, you're going to lose the case. Hey, Jamie, I don't know if, if you know anything about this, but I can imagine that when we talk about CRA, we know there's a million different scams out there based around the CRA. What, what's the official notification from the CRA and the only thing that you should pay attention to? It's actual letters, correct? Yeah, there's actual letters where some people, of course, have also received, um, you know, an email in which you have to log into your My Account. So again, if you're nervous about the email, you don't have to click on any links, but everyone should be at this point hopefully registered for the CRA My Account. If you have internet access, all you have to do is have online banking. You can use your online banking to get in. Um, that CRA account has a copy of all the mail that's sent to you. So if you're a little bit nervous about something you receive, you can always go into the CRA My Account, log in there, and see all the official correspondence, uh, including any notices of debt that might be on your account. All right, Jamie, thanks so much uh, for the insight. Appreciate your time. Um, last week, during the CPC leadership debate uh, in Edmonton, May 11th, Pierre Polyev was uh, talking about economic policy. He was talking about inflation um, and uh, interest rates and all the rest. How long will it take him to reduce interest rates? Polyev said, well, that depends on how high inflation is when he comes to power. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say that those that he feels are responsible for high inflation should be held accountable. The Bank of Canada governor has allowed himself to become the ATM machine of this government. And so I would replace him with a new governor who would reinstate our low inflation mandate, protect the purchasing power of our dollar, and honor the working people who earn those dollars. Quite a declaration. You can hear the applause from the crowd. They were very much pro-Polyev. Um, it's a declaration that got a lot of reaction. Um, Notably from Jean Charest, who called it a reckless misrepresentation of a valuable institution. Leslin Lewis, another conservative leadership candidate, said she was concerned about Polyev's vow to fire Macklem and believes that politicians shouldn't meddle in the Bank of Canada or undermine faith in the nation's financial system. Prime Minister said much the same thing. A lot of people coming out to say, whoa, whoa, this, this kind of talk is not a good thing to have. Why? Why not? They are responsible for controlling inflation. Inflation's running away. So, shouldn't they be held accountable? More complicated than that. So, let's get into some of the nuance around this with Chris Reagan, who's an associate professor and founding director of McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's nice to speak to my hometown. There you go. All right. So, let's start with just the basis of the statement and what Polyev was saying. The Bank of Canada has become Trudeau's ATM, and that is why we have runaway inflation. True or false? I would say that's mostly false. Okay. I mean, there, we know that an increased money into, into the supply does cause inflation. So why is it different in this case? 
Well, so there's a lot of complexity in this. So I, I think inflation today um, is actually got several causes, um, some of which the, have nothing to do with what the Bank of Canada has been doing. I mean, nothing the Bank of Canada can do can fix supply chains that have been disruptive that are driving up prices. Nothing the Bank of Canada can do can address uh, the prices of, of commodities that have been driven up in the last two and a half months due to uh, war in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, part part of what's going on in the economy it does kind of lie at the Bank of Canada's doorstep, but a bunch of it doesn't. So we could have the discussion about the multiple causes. In terms of the creation of money, um, Mr. Polyev is right that the Bank of Canada has created a whole bunch of money in the last uh, two years, basically. About $400 billion is the number he used, and that's about right. But that money... You have to look into the details of kind of what kind of money that is and where it is. And most of that is, in fact, sitting in deposits of the commercial banks at the Bank of Canada. It's not money that's actually in your pocket fueling demand for goods and services. It's money that's actually keeping the commercial banking system extremely liquid. And the reason why the Bank of Canada now wants to embark on what they're calling quantitative tightening is to actually pull that money back out of the system, out of those commercial bank accounts, um, before it starts to fuel inflation. So I would, in fact, argue that most of the inflation that we are seeing now, maybe even all of the inflation that we're seeing now um, isn't coming about from the from that creation of money, but that forces you to get into a a, a kind of a nuanced discussion right. about what money is and where it is and what it's doing. That's the thing, Chris. It's very nuanced. There's a lot of different things at play here. Polyev knows that, but the statement "I'm going to fire this guy who's in charge of the central bank," boy, it went over well. You heard the crowd. There's a lot of people that love it. Uh, I, uh, I heard this. I was listening to that debate. I heard the cheers. I agree. Um, there's, so, look, I think there's actually two issues here. One is whether the criticism of the bank is legitimate on the grounds of, you know, what is causing inflation. So I actually think, as I said, that most of the inflation that's going on right now isn't uh, mm-hmm. caused by or hasn't been caused by the Bank of Canada's actions. So I think it would be wrong to criticize the bank on the, those grounds. But the second Second thing at play, which is uh, which is frankly a bigger issue, which is uh, I think there's a risk of politicizing the Bank of Canada. Right. Uh, what I what I said in my article in the line um, last week was that there's a reason why we have operationally independent central banks. It's not just Canada; it's many many advanced countries have over the last uh, 40 years basically moved to a world where their central banks are operationally independent. They're still owned by the government. They're still accountable to Parliament and accountable to the government and, and to the people, but they're operationally independent. And the reason they are is because when they weren't, in, during the 1950s and 60s, when they weren't operationally independent, what we realized was that politicians got into the game. They put pressure on their central banks to goose the economy before an election. Uh, this often happened, and the result was that inflation ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up. And soon we got to the point where we realized that countries that had operationally more independent central banks were countries with lower inflation. So the irony here is that I mean, I think when you when you criticize and you know threaten to fire and replace the governor of the Bank of Canada because he's not doing a good job, or so is the claim. Number one, I don't think that's right. But the second thing is, is that actually contributes to a world where we might end up with higher inflation and not lower inflation. So if you really want low inflation, I think what you do is you is you trust the central bank to do their job, and they are accountable. They absolutely are accountable. Uh, but we are going through 
shockingly unusual times with, with COVID over the past two years and then with the Ukraine war on top of this. This is very unusual times, and uh, a bunch of that inflation just isn't coming from the central bank. Right. Um, is there any indication that there is you know, a, a leg to stand on when you're talking about it has become, you know, Justin Trudeau's ATM. He wants to restore independence, which would seem to indicate that Tiff Macklem is not operating independently at this point and is in the pocket of the Liberal government. Is, is there anything to support that notion? Well, look, I actually think that's a um, that's an interesting debating point. Now, I, I have no evidence. I have seen no evidence that the Bank of Canada has lost its independence. Um, you know, if you listen to what Tiff Macklem says, he will t- or Steve Pohl was before him, um, they will both say that the reason why they massively expanded the Bank of Canada's balance sheet by buying government bonds was to keep interest rates low. Now, you could have a debate about whether that was necessary. Uh, in fact, I think we probably should have more of a debate in this country about whether that was necessary. Um, because you know, interest rates at the beginning of this process in early 2020 were very low already. Mm-hmm. So if the government borrowing uh, would have had the effect of pushing up interest rates by 100 or 150 basis points, that probably wouldn't have been you know, a big problem. But anyways, we can have the debate about whether they should or should not have done it. But it's quite another matter to claim that the Bank of Canada was effectively forced to do that. And I, I think there's no evidence for that. Uh, I think if the Bank of Canada was forced to do that, then I would be concerned because it comes back to this idea about whether the bank is operationally independent. Uh, but it's interesting that other central banks did it. So is it if the Bank of Canada has lost its independence, does that mean the Fed has lost its independence and the Bank of England and the ECB and etc.? Um, or is it uh, maybe a, an easier explanation is that central banks around the world who think largely the same way saw the same sort of shock with governments that were uh, borrowing massively to provide COVID relief, and those central banks saw the same shock and they saw the same reason to have a monetary expansion. I think that's probably a better explanation. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, like you, like you said earlier, it's an extraordinary circumstance that they're trying to deal with at this point. And you know what? I mean, Bank of Canada had, came to an agreement with the government that we're going to try and keep inflation to 2%. Obviously. Obviously, they're, they're, they're way, way off there. Um, so I, I think it's fair to ha- be critical of that. But at the same time, how much can you really heap upon them when, as you say, it's so extraordinarily you know, hard to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, for goodness sake? Yeah, and I, you know, the, the Bank of Canada has already said, uh, as some other central banks have said, that they were probably a little bit slow to raise interest rates. I think that's probably right. And, uh, you know, and, and there's a danger here about, uh, you know, being the Monday morning quarterback, right? Is yeah. it, It's always easier to, to analyze these things after the fact. Um, but I think there's going to be an interesting test in the next, uh, you know, next six and nine months about whether the Bank of Canada continues to raise rates to try to, uh, to, try to re- take some of the steam out of a, an economy that's really, uh, you know, firing pretty well. Uh, I, I think it's firing on all cylinders, or at least pretty close to all cylinders. So, um, look, I think, I think monetary policy is tough at the best of times, and I think these are absolutely not the best of times. They haven't been for two years. Um, you know, I... I, I know the Bank of Canada uh, more than I know other economic institutions. I've been very impressed with them uh, since they've adopted inflation targeting in the early 1990s. I think the governors have actually been, and not just the governors, but the governors and the and the people, the analysts and the deputy governors at the bank are, are hardworking, smart, impressive people. Uh, that doesn't mean they get a pass. Uh, they absolutely need to be accountable. Yeah. But given these extraordinary times, 
uh, I am prepared to cut them a little slack uh, and to make sure that they, you know, to watch and to see what they do next. Yeah. Uh, because, because there is a lot of inflation in the system that really hasn't come from the Bank of Canada. Exactly. So, I mean, it's understandable, but doesn't mean you get a pass and we need to see what happens in the coming weeks and months. Well, and they continue to issue their quarterly reports. They continue to go in front of the, uh, you know, the House of Commons Finance Committee. Uh, I mean, there is a process for accountability of the Bank of Canada, and I think we should make sure that we are uh, holding the bank to account. But let's also make sure that we get our facts right uh, and, and our analysis right. Uh, and it is complicated times, and it's, it's not quite as simple as some of the um, critics on the stage say. Excellent. Okay, Chris, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shay. You bet. It was a discussion that came up on Friday morning as we were doing the show, and the announcement came down from the Supreme Court of Canada um, ruling that using, or, or a law against, I guess is the more accurate way to put it, the law that said you could not use extreme intoxication um, as a defense for violent acts that you are accused of um, had a lot of you concerned and a lot of you troubled by the fact that now this seems to open the door to people saying, uh, oh, I was just really, really drunk, I was really, really high, and using that as a defense to excuse um, violent behavior. And that's basically what it does open the door to. But as with all of these legal decisions, of course, there's lots of nuance and there's lots of different avenues to take a look at. And, you know, the decision did come with recommendations to the government as how to deal with this in a way that would be constitutional. So let's get into um, a full discussion about what this decision means, uh, why they made the decision that they made. We're going to chat with U of C law professor Lisa Silver now. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's an interesting decision. And as I say, uh, you know, when we talked about it on Friday, a lot of the listeners were really, really like, what? How can that possibly yes. be? Um, um, first of all, the, yeah. de- the, 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 the decision itself, what they were asked to determine was whether or not it was constitutional to deny people that defense, correct? Well, it's a little bit, as you know, as you said, it's a little bit nuanced, yeah. more nuanced than that. Um, It was a specific section in the criminal code that was found to be unconstitutional, and it was placed into the code in the mid-1990s after there was a Supreme Court of Canada decision on the issue. And the issue is also a little bit more complicated as well, Shay, so I'm happy to get into that for your listeners. Yeah, let's do that, because exactly, you're right. I mean, w- w- the decision that was made, and of course, they're supposed to just be looking at the law and, and the Constitution and how the two work together. Yeah. So so walk us through the decision they made and why they sure. decided what they decided. Sure. So I, I'm actually going to go back to the English common law, because that is where this all starts. Uh, intoxication was always only a defense for certain kind of crimes. And those kind of crimes were deemed to be crimes that required either uh, an ulterior motive or a higher level of thinking. And so, for example, uh, advanced or extreme intoxication was always a defense for murder. And you could always raise that because you, you couldn't have the fault element of a crime. And a crime requires it's constitutionally and also common law required that, that the Crown prove beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the person has this criminal intention. Right. Because in our criminal law, we want to make people responsible and penalize them for those wrong choices that they make. And so if they, if they didn't make a, a choice or they didn't have control over their actions, then they shouldn't be penalized. But in any event, so it's, it's always been a defense for murder. But it was not a defense for what we call general intent crimes, which are crimes that require minimal intent, like assault, uh, like sexual assault, and like manslaughter. So what would happen traditionally, Shay, is that if someone used the defense of advanced or extreme intoxication for murder, they could be acquitted, but then they would be convicted of manslaughter. So there was sort of this idea that there would be this underlying offense uh, that someone would be convicted of because they would be found to be morally blameworthy. So in came this case in, in the 1990s, Regina and Davio, and the court had to apply the charter to the rule that you couldn't use intoxication for those minimal intent crimes. And the court ended up saying, look it, we're going to carve out an exception. Advanced intoxication is not a defense to those minimal intent crimes, but extreme intoxication can be. Okay. And extreme is, is extreme, Shane. Yeah, extreme. like what's, what's the qualifier on that, Lisa? I mean, who determines right. how extreme is extreme? Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the court even said it's to be a rare defense because it requires medical evidence. So an accused just can't get up on the stand and say, oh, yeah, I was so drunk. I yeah. just, you know what? I don't remember what happened. That's not good enough. For extreme intoxication, there needs to be a foundation in the evidence. You need expert evidence because extreme means that a person was not even capable of forming that intent. So it's what we call a capacity defense, and it is uh, to be very, you know, very, very restrained in its use. Um, And so, and, and the reason for that is because if you cannot even form that minimal intent, then you, under our law, under our charter, under our traditional uh, principles, you should not be held to be criminally responsible. Uh, a question, and I got this from a lot of the listeners, and it just came in again as we, you and I were yeah. talking, and I'm wondering. So yeah. a lot of people saying, okay, so I kill my spouse or or I, I beat yeah. up my kid or whatever, and I realize yeah. I'm in trouble, and I go out and get completely obliterated and say, oh, oh I was no. totally loaded when yeah. I did it. I mean, is that possible? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, so as in law, there's always, you know, a concept of, um, first of all, that would be, uh, part of the Crown's case would, would be to prove that the intention to get drunk at that point was to escape criminal liability. Yeah. So there's always an exception as well for, for sort of if you foresaw, if you put yourself in a position that you knew, right, that you reasonably foresaw something was going to happen, then the court usually um, takes a dim view of that, of that kind of scenario. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be case by case for sure yeah. uh, when it comes to murder. Um, there's going to be a lot of evidence that are, that's going to be led, and the Crown's going to be pretty sharp 
and being able to cross-examine and lead evidence that the person intentionally did this in order to have a defense. Uh, I wanted to ask you, like you say, okay, we, we if somebody is extremely intoxicated, they can use that as a defense for murder. But does that mean they get away with it? Or does that mean we say, okay, you couldn't form the intent, so we can't charge you yeah. with, in, with uh, yeah. deliberate murder, but we can yeah. get you on, say, manslaughter or something else? Right. Correct. And so that was, that was what the traditional rule was. But then Davio came around and said, well, that's, that, you know, that's fine, except for extremes. So that rare event where the person doesn't have capacity. So that's what Davio said. And so therefore, after Davio, yes, you could use extreme intoxication only as a defense to manslaughter, which would require, as I said, very, uh, very persuasive um, medical evidence. The Crown usually would call, you know, their own, their own medical evidence as well. So, but as your listeners are, are upset about this ruling, the public was very upset after that Davio uh, decision came out because Davio was a sexual assault. And so the fear was, well, how are we going to protect the vulnerable in our society? You know, women and children who, who are, you know, often the victims of, of sexual offenses. Mm-hmm. And so the government put in, within a year, they put yeah. in this section in the criminal code, section 33.1, where they said you can't use the defense of intoxication for those minimal offense uh, crimes, minimal intent crimes, where there, where where violence, where there's a, an interference of bodily integrity, um, and they said by by voluntarily drinking, you have the the intention to commit those crimes, and that was the problem, Shay. Yeah, uh, it was the way that they did it uh, that you know, and that's what the court was concerned about. I can explain what the court said was wrong with that, but I have to say when when. You know, and I was practicing in, in, in the 1990s, and I, I know that many of us were like, how is this constitutional? Really? Okay, yeah, and I, I've read that from other analysts saying, yeah, we kind of yeah. thought this was coming. Um, it seems yeah. to me in the decision, um, the court said, listen, we know that this is going to upset people. We know this yeah. is going to open it yeah. up to all kinds of, this is what you should do. I mean, yes. so what are they yes. saying the government can do? And is that something the court usually does? Okay, well, you know, I mean, when it comes to striking down a section, uh, often the court, um, not often, but the court, the court can give direction, but I have never seen it in this manner in, in terms of being very sensitive to the public. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, the courts are very sensitive, but they usually don't. I, when I read that paragraph, I thought, wow, you know, the court's talking to us, right? You know, the court is actually very concerned about this yeah. as well. Like clearly they're, they're concerned changed. that open, they're yeah. opening up a door here that they right. know is going to cause yeah. them public grief, so yeah. they're giving yeah. you a way out. Yeah. Yes, and, you know, I'm sure they recall Davio. I mean, Davio from 1993, I mean, it, you know, right, right away the public was upset. There were many, you know, women, uh, you know, uh, equality uh, groups, not-for-profit, you know, sexual assault survivor groups. So they've learned their lesson in the sense that they know that if they, if they, if, if this isn't constitutional, then they need to give the public a, a really good reason why, but also to give them the confidence 
that this is not the end of the yeah. story. So they, what are they saying can be done? I mean, if it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. Yeah. What's the workaround they've come up with? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so let's just go back to what the problem was. So the problem with this section that they had put in is that essentially it was substituting that voluntary con- uh, intoxication for the mental element requirement of the, any, of the particular crime the person was charged with. And the court said, you can't do that. I mean, you can't substitute. It has to be, the Crown has to prove the the fault element of the crime. You can't substitute it for something else. So what the court mentioned, and this is actually something that I feel is is certainly um, the way forward, is that instead of focusing on the crime itself, uh, Parliament can create an offense of voluntary intoxication while committing a criminal offense. And then, therefore, front and center is that intoxication. The crime is all about that intoxication. Uh, whatever fault element will be required, it'll be that. So um, that, I believe, will be much, much more constitutionally favorable, I would suggest, uh, than, than what they tried to do. It's an interesting case, and uh, as you say, obviously, you've got to follow the rule of the law, but we'll see. How long do you think that might take for Parliament to, to come up with this, this solution? Well, well, you know, after Davio, it, it only took them a year. Davio okay. came out in 1993. Uh, they changed the code in 94. But a year's still a long time, yep. Shay. Sure is. So I would, you know, I would have hoped that they would have anticipated this because there were, you know, in Ontario, the section had been struck down. Uh, in Alberta, it had been upheld. So I hope they had already thought this could happen and that they're ready to go. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm just tuning in. We're talking more about the Supreme Court decision from last week saying that extreme intoxication is a valid defense in some violent crimes. Um, uh, They said it was unconstitutional to deny that as a defense uh, in some instances. The argument was uh, just because you voluntarily got yourself in a state of extreme intoxication, that doesn't mean that you chose to commit a violent act and you could theoretically not be criminally responsible for your actions undertaken while extremely intoxicated. Now, a lot of you are very concerned, a lot of people very concerned about what this this law, this change means in a number of different areas. One of the groups are one of the... Um, categories of of groups that were really, really in support of this law was women's advocacy groups, um, people who deal with domestic violence, because think about it, that's the ultimate um, landing point for a lot of what we're talking about here. And it really has them very, very concerned for a number of very, very good reasons. So let's talk a bit about that. We're going to speak with Kat Owens now, who is the project director at Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Kat, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Now, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it just basically for the, you know, the effect of sort of defining the playing field here. Why would women's advocacy groups be strongly in support of the law that was struck down on Friday? So 
I would say that our advocacy group um, is less concerned with the law itself and more concerned with the the impact, the potential impact of the decision. I think it's important to clarify what extreme intoxication is, and that's essentially akin to the conduct of a person, say, who has a seizure, who has a heart attack, who has no control over their actions. If we're talking about someone who's very drunk or very high and maybe they're blacking out, they don't have memory, that's not going to reach that same level. So I think that is the, the category, that automatism category that the decision dealt with. What we really need to make sure is that everyone who's involved in the justice system understands that and applies the law correctly. Yeah, because, I mean, I think a lot of the assumption is, oh, my goodness, now anybody can just say, oh, I was really, really drunk and get away with it. That's not what we're talking about right here. I mean, this is extreme cases. Yes, exactly. And I think that the concern is completely valid because we see with survivors of sexual and gender-based violence that the law fails them constantly. And so I think the concern that, oh, this is going to be a situation where someone can just get drunk and then get off scot-free and have no accountability, I get where that concern comes from. And that's why it's so important that we communicate what this decision means and that we ensure that police, prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges all apply it correctly. Um, And I know there was a lot of concern, and I think this goes to the same thing, trying to make sure everybody understands exactly what this decision means. Because a lot of people were saying, you know, if you're a victim, of domestic violence, sexual violence, whatever the case may be. You've already got the should I report this or not debate that goes on in so many cases, and we know in a lot of cases it's not reported. Now if there's another, well, he was drunk, he's just going to get off anyway. What's the point? I'm not even going to do it. Are you concerned about that? I think, yes. I think that there are, like you mentioned, so many barriers that exist already to reporting, the fear of not being believed, especially if we're talking about Black and Indigenous survivors' fear of engaging with a justice system that often victimizes them or criminalizes them, um, and so it's not an avenue for them. So I do think that, depending on how the decision is applied, this could be another barrier, but I do think If you took this decision out of the conversation entirely, we have so much work that we need to do on our justice system and on the different options that people have to report this type of violence. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because, I mean, this is just the latest. But as as you say, um, a a lot of women in this position feel like the legal system has let them down over and over and over and over long before the decision that came out on Friday, right? Yes, absolutely. And we, we see that. At all stages of the process, we see that in when um, when women and survivors choose to report to police, if they do, we see that in how trials go. We see that in mistakes that are made by rape myths and stereotypes that are used. It is a system that just is not working for survivors. The interesting part of this, and we talked to um, a UFC law professor just before chatting with you, was in their decision, the Supreme Court came out and said, hey, listen, what you've done here is unconstitutional, but here is a way that might work. Uh, We understand what you're trying to do. So this technically would be a possible way for you to get around the problems that you had with the original law. Um, So maybe, just maybe, to be optimistic, this could actually lead to, to progress? Yeah, the Supreme Court definitely did set out some different options that the government can undertake, and that's something definitely they can explore. I think for for LEAF, the, the progress we really want to see 
is broader than that and is thinking about, well, how do we improve the system that we have and how can we maybe explore different systems that are outside of the criminal justice system for responding to sexual violence? How can we listen to survivors and what they need and and really create those systems and responses that respond to those needs? Is that work being done, though, Kat? I mean, we've talked, I mean, like, I've been in media for 30 years and we've talked about this and it seems like we're still having a lot of the same conversations. Yeah, it's deeply frustrating. Uh, It does feel like we're having the same conversation over and over again. I would say that there are some... Um, There are some very good pilot projects being done that are looking at what are called restorative or transformative justice approaches that don't involve the legal system, that involve getting different access to counseling for the parties who are involved, figuring out what what the survivor needs to be sort of repaired or put back into a position that they were before. And there is some promising work that's being done in that space. And I think people are more open to that conversation now, perhaps, than in the past, because we're just seeing how much the criminal justice system continues to fail. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, I guess to try and put a spin on, at least we're talking about a cat, right? I mean, we're taking a look at the laws around this and recognizing that there's all kinds of problems. Yeah, I think that is definitely something that can be taken from this. And we do see the the coverage that this issue has gotten in the media yeah. uh, and the coverage gender-based violence has gotten more broadly. I do think it's an important conversation for us to be having. It just needs to lead to action. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about a cat. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.